Genesis chapter 17. If you guys will turn back there, if you're not there yet, um, I'll read, and um, if you guys can follow along. Uh, this morning, we do have, uh, at the end of our service, a couple more worship songs, the second Sunday of the month. They're going to be uh, some of the leaders uh, of, of, in the church up front in these four chairs as uh, an opportunity during those last two songs of worship for you guys to come up and to receive prayer. And, you know, I just feel like maybe that, um, as Awesome was sharing with us, that there's some things here that God's laid on some of your guys' hearts, things that you're praying over as far as God's leading and God's guidance and God's direction. You know, that's an opportunity this morning to come up and, and to pray uh, with, with some of the guys in the church for God to give you uh, a further word of knowledge or uh, a direction in that. Um, also, you know, it's prayer time for a prayer for receiving healing or intercession for those who you know in your own life who may not be walking with the Lord that, that needs to um, be reestablished with that, that walk with the Lord or come to, to know Him for the first time. So um, whether it's a prayer for yourself or prayer for another, prayer for guidance in your life, maybe you just need to feel led to pray for our fellowship with somebody or pray for some of the things that are going on in our church with some of the ministries that are, that are taking place, please take that opportunity to come forward and, and to pray together this morning during the, the, the end of our service. So verse chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. And if you write in your Bible, you might want to underline or highlight that. I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between you and me and will, med- will multiply you exceedingly. And then Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and, make nation, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. Again, for anybody... Who, in the, in the church today who believes in replacement theology, that, that the church has replaced somehow the Hebrew people as, as God's chosen people. And now we have, we have kind of taken their place in all the promises and the covenants that God's given to us. You, you have to deal with verses like this that says where God said when he made this covenant it was an everlasting covenant forever. You know, Paul talks about how we've been grafted in as Gentile believers through our faith in Jesus Christ, and we become co-heirs. We've not become replacement heirs. And, 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 and there's a whole thing going on that, but I don't have this more, all the time this morning to go into that, but I want to point out these things as we go through them so that when you run into this, you have some, some, some own reasons to know why you believe what you believe. So as we go on in verse 8, it says, Also I give to you and your descendants after you, a land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, an everlasting promise. And I will, he says, God be their God. Verse 9, and then God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Underline, it shall be a sign, a sign, a mark of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male in your generation. 
He who is born in your house and, brought, and bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and I also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. <laughs> and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to, and Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall be, or and he shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. And that today is the nation of Islam. But my covenant I will establish with you, with Isaac, my, whom Sarah shall bear, to you at this set time next year. Again, God operates on a plan. Then, verse 22, he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham, and Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very same day as God had said to him. Abram was 99 years old, and he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from, from a foreigner, was, were, were, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for already the time that we've had in worship through song, and worship, Lord, through Austin sharing what you're doing in and through the youth, God, and it gives us hope for our future, not only for our nation, but for the world, Lord, as we've seen this video and seen, God, how people are all the same everywhere. God, that we truly are in need of you. We're in need of love. We're in need of forgiveness. We're in need of reconciliation. And God, you've made that available to all of us through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would give us boldness like you've given Austin boldness to be courageous, to share our faith, Lord, to tell people about the truth, to love them where they're at, to, 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 to be, God, like Paul was, all things to all men so that some might be saved. Father, use us, and, and this morning, God, as we come before you and study your word, we pray you would teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, and that you would bestow your wisdom and grace upon us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as I begin to study for this and, and kind of look through this chapter, there are certain things that are standing out to us, and as I was reflecting on that, I was thinking back to when I was in high school, and and it's kind of, if you guys know my, my, my past, and, and, and I wasn't a believer when I was in high school, and, and, and I really started down a life that wasn't very good in the sixth grade. So when I got to the ninth grade, things were kind of hazy and foggy. But I can remember, I can distinctly remember 
that when I was in ninth grade that we had a liter literature and composition teacher who introduced our class to many famous authors. That's usually the, the age when you get introduced to, to authors and books like they had written, authors like Ernest Hemingway, and I remember reading The Old Man and the Sea, Homer's Iliad, um, Charles Dickinson's Oliver's Twist, and Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And some of these books we, we, we had to read on our own, and then others we, we read in the classroom. You know, and, 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 and I remember that Romeo and Juliet, for a bunch of ninth graders, was kind of an awkward thing to read in the classroom. But nevertheless, we did. We read it together in the classroom. And I have to be honest when I say I don't really remember a whole lot about Romeo and Juliet from, from the time that, that, that we, we, we spent reading it there in the classroom. But I have seen a couple of Hollywood versions of Romeo and Juliet from, 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 the, from what movies that I've seen in the movie theaters. And, and I say that because what I do remember is I remember the famous words that Juliet spoke when she was pondering how she had fallen in love with Romeo, who belonged to the Montague family, which were, as you guys know, the lifelong enemies of the, of the uh, uh, Capulet family. And, and that she belonged to. And, and as Juliet contemplates this set of unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances that, that she's in that's really preventing her from marrying the man that she loved, she says this. She says, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. In other words, Juliet was asking, What difference does a name make? Because no matter what Romeo's name was, she still loved him. And even though we can see what Shakespeare was trying to point out as he wrote these words that, that Juliet spoke, the fact of the matter is, is, it, is that names do mean something. Names do mean something, even more so when we look to the names of the men and women that we read about in the Word of God, in the Bible. Considering... The name a person was given in, the, in biblical times, specifically, they revealed something about that person, something about their birth, something about their character or a life-changing experience that they had gone through. For example, we know that Jacob, whose name was, was, was given to him when he was at birth, his name was Deceiver, that he was renamed Israel after, a, after many things that God take, had taken him to traveling down a path that, that ended up with Jacob wrestling with God, with, with the deceiver wrestling with God. And, 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 and when, when he had wrestled with God, God changed his name to Israel, which means triumphant with God or one who prevails with God. And I point these things out because here in chapter 17, of which we just read, much of which we read centers on the mention of four specific names. The name of God, which is revealed first to us. A name of God, which is revealed first to us in, in verse 1. As the Almighty God. Then the, 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 the changing of the names of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. And lastly, this name of, of, of Isaac, the son of promise. Abraham's unborn son at this point in our, in our story. Son of promise. And so as we begin to look through these verses and study these things and look at these names, if you look back to verse 1, the first thing I want to point out as we look at this is that this is the fifth time, guys, this is the fifth recorded time that God has appeared to Abraham. 
And even though this is the fifth time, it is the very first time that God has come to Abraham and referred to himself saying, I am Almighty God. It's significant. And there's a great purpose and meaning behind this for us to take note of. To begin with, the Hebrew word that's used here, the Hebrew words that are used here for Almighty God is the words El Shuddai, meaning God All-Powerful or God the All-Sufficient One. It speaks to the the omnipotence of God, the fact that God's all-powerful. And even though this is the first time that the word Shuhudai is, is used, it's used an additional 48 times in the Old Testament. This being the first 48 additional times. In fact, it's even used in the New Testament. The Greek equivalent is used nine more times in the New Testament as the Lord God Almighty is how we read it often there in the New Testament. And, and, and as we consider, however, that this is the first time that God refills Himself to Abraham, because this is what God's doing each time He comes to Abraham, this being the fifth time, is God's making Himself known to Abraham And this being the first time that God revealed himself to Abraham as the El Shaddai, we should wonder why he did so now. Why God waited for this specific time and these specific set of circumstances to do it. And what appears to also have been after a 13-year period of silence between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Why now? And when we begin to connect the contextual dots, this is the awesome thing about studying God's Word verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And if you were here last week, you know we studied through chapter 16 and then the week before that, chapter 15. And if you you missed out on those things, you can always go to our website and get caught up on those studies so that you, you you can see the context that we're talking about. But when we begin to connect the contextual dots between what we had previously read last week in chapter 16 with Abraham at that time, you remember Abraham wondering, he, he was actually afraid for his own life, and, and, and faced with his own death, he began to wonder, what about an heir? God's promised me an heir, I might die, who's going to receive all these things? If God's promised me an heir and I'm going to die, how can he bring me an heir if I'm dead? And as Abraham was contemplating all of these things and reacting out of fear back in chapter 16, we know that he rushed ahead of God in regards to the promise of an heir, by taking Hagar, his wife's handmaiden, whom his wife had given to him, to give birth to Ishmael. And when we connect those dots contextually to what we now read here in this chapter, things begin to make sense to us on why God would now come to Abraham and say, Abraham, I'm the Almighty God. In light of this, we see that God was coming to Abraham who, by the way, was now 99 years old. He was coming to him and telling him that it's now time. Saying to him, Abraham, it's the right time. I think it's like 26 years had passed since God had first spoken that promise to Abraham. He's saying, now it's the right time. It's the right time. Finally, it had come for his wife, Sarah, or Sarai, to have have a son, the son of promise. And God was prefacing this message, this proclamation, with a truth. With the truth of telling him, telling Abraham, that he is the all-sufficient one. The all-powerful one. 
And he did so, we see, to assure Abraham that there's nothing too hard for him. There's nothing too hard. And I know that's something that we all need to hear, that we all need to be reminded of, because God's put us in situations or allowed for us to be in situations where, where we feel like Abraham, where we're 99 years old, and we look at ourselves, we look at our resources, we look at our abilities, we look at our circumstances, and we go, there's no way. Yet God's word to us this morning is that He's the El Shaddai, the Almighty God, and there's nothing too great for Him. In addition to this, we also need to see that God... And this is so important because it's more than just God saying, I have the power to do what you can't do. There's more than that going on by this revelation through this word of who God proclaims himself to be. Because we also need to see that God was, through this process, through this revelation, continuing to make himself known to Abraham in a personal way. And God does that every time we study His Word, every time we call out to Him in prayer, every time we experience Him in a way where He's the center of it, He's revealing Himself to us more and more in a personal way. And through this process, we'll know that Abraham will, will come to know and experience a God, we're told, in a way where God Himself, in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, will later refer to Abraham as His friend. Saying, Abraham was my friend. The Almighty God, the Omnipotent One, was Abraham's friend. So along with this proclamation of being El Shaddai, God confirms His promise to Abraham for a son. And He lets Abraham know through this process that, hey Abraham, Ishmael, he's not the one. He's not the one that I've promised. And as God is about to do the miraculous, the supernatural, He reminds Abraham of the covenant that He had previously made with him, which also included the promise of land. It was the son of promise from which many descendants and a great nation would rise up and kings would come forth, but also a promise and a covenant of land, a land in which he was a stranger of. A land that his descendants would possess. So 13 times, if you read it there with me, in 27 verses, God uses this word covenant to remind Abraham of exactly what he had promised him. And 14 other times, God says, I love this the most. And maybe you keyed in on it when you were reading through this, but 14 other times, God says, I will or I have. Abraham, I'm the Almighty God, and by the way, I will. I will, Abraham. I will. I have. And he speaks these things, and he speaks to the fact that the covenant which contained these promises would be sustained by him. Abraham, I'm the Almighty God. I've promised these things to you, and I will bring them to pass. I will, God says, I will. However, we need to see that this revelation of who God is and what God was going to do came with a responsibility. Do you understand that this morning in your own life? When God reveals himself to us, when he makes himself known to us in an intimate and personal way, and he speaks promises to us, do you know that that revelation comes with responsibility? 
And so it was true with, with Abraham. Revelation of who God is and what God was going to do came with a responsibility. And the fact of the matter is, is revelation always comes with responsibility. And we pray, we desire this. God, show me your will. Make yourself known to me. Who's ever asked for those things? We all have. But do you understand that God says, okay, but there's a responsibility. And in verse 1, we read, if you look there, it's very clearly spoken out to us. We read that God was calling Abraham after he says, Abraham, I'm the Almighty God. What did he say? He said, walk before me and be blameless. That's the responsibility. Walk before me and be blameless. In other words, what this means is to live with the understanding that the eyes of God were always upon him. Wow, that's pretty powerful. To live with the understanding that the eyes of God were always upon him. That can be comforting, or it could be overwhelming. Right? Depending on how you respond to the revelation. Abraham, you're always before me. And this word blameless is the Hebrew word tamim. And it simply means to be single-hearted or wholly devoted. And I like that because we can come away with the wrong impression. That being blameless somehow means being sinless or perfect. And we know that Abraham was not sinless and that he was not perfect. And neither are we. But yet we can be blameless like is being described here in that when it means to be single-hearted or wholly devoted. To not be double-minded in our ways. The point is, God wasn't expecting Abraham to be perfect, but he was calling him to be devoted. In other words, here's another way of saying it, to walk in integrity. That's something that's so lacking in our world today. And it should not be so among us who are, who are called by the name of Jesus Christ. We should be wholly devoted. We should walk with integrity. Meaning that we should live in a way that reflects who and what we believe. And this is what God was calling Abraham to. Abraham, the Almighty God, walk before me blameless. Walk in such a way that reflects who and what you believe in. Likewise, as believers in Jesus Christ and followers of God, we also have this responsibility to walk blamelessly before our God who has revealed Himself to us. He has revealed Himself to us. He's, 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 he's made Himself known through the express image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because He's made Himself known to us, we're called to walk with integrity, to walk before our God blamelessly, meaning we should never settle for anything less than striving to conforming ourselves or being conformed, put it that way, to the will of God. And really what that means is submission. Submitting to, to the Holy Spirit. Submitting to the sanctification process that God's got us all in. Meaning we should never settle, again, for anything less than striving to, conform our, to be, be conformed to God's will for our lives. And really, if you go, how do I do that? The simple, guys, the very simple secret behind a blameless life, the very simple secret behind walking in integrity to who and what we believe is simply through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Through personal worship of God. And like Abraham, if you read on there, every believer must fall before the Lord and yield everything to Him. 
God makes himself known to us. When he calls us to walk before him blamelessly, we should humble ourselves in worship and adoration of God, falling before him. And if, if, if we truly believe that he is, that our God is the El Shaddai, the God Almighty, then who are we to even resist his will? And so in verse 3 we see, and it says, Then Abraham fell on his face. He fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. The name Abram. Names have meanings, right? The name Abram means exalted father. And here we read that God changed his name to Abraham, which literally means a father of a multitude. And God made it clear that he was changing Abram's name to reflect what God was doing with Abram. And even though God had not yet made Abraham a father of, of, of many, a father of a multitude, it's spoken of, if you look there in verse 5, in the present tense. As if it has already been done. And this is another great reminder that all the promises of God are yes and amen. All the promises of God are yes and amen. And as we patiently wait on God's perfect timing, we can, we can do so with complete confidence that we're moving forward in faith in order to obtain the promises that God has laid up before us. Because from God's point of view, they've already taken place. God will do what he has said he's going to do. Remember last week as we studied the life of Abraham, we've seen how true faith is revealed or shown or manifested in our life as we patiently wait on God. And at that time, I pointed to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which says and tells us that faith is patient and firm. Yet in this chapter, as we continue on now, and again studying the life of Abraham, we learn more about faith, and we see that faith is, is not only patient and firm, that we wait upon the promises of God, faith is also walking in obedience. Faith is not apart from obedience. In other words, when we believe in God and all of His promises, you know what should happen? We should live in a way that reflects what we believe. And so God establishing this covenant between Himself and Abraham, the father of the multitude, spoke some 14 times and He says, I will. Yet, if you look down to verses 9 and 10, God goes on and says, I will, I will, I will, I have. We also read that God says, as for you, you shall keep My covenant. As for me, Abraham, I will. I will. As for us, church, God has said He will. He has. But there is also this as for us. As for you, you shall keep My covenant. And in doing so, God called Abraham to move in faith and He gave the command for him to be circumcised. Not as a means to fulfill the covenant, 
That's why I had you underline there where in verse 11 where God says, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Not by the means to fulfill the covenant, but as a sign, as a mark of one who by faith has entered into the covenant and become this recipient of all the promises. It's like your ID. Look, I'm a covenant holder. In other words, in addition to the changing of name, circumcision was literally the outward sign of remembrance. For who? First and foremost, for Abraham. It was a sign of remembrance for Abraham about the promises that God had made to him. Equally, circumcision would be this ongoing reminder to his descendants of the covenant that God had made with Abraham's descendants, reminding the Hebrew people down through time, even to, to this day, that they are the sons and daughters born from and held by God's everlasting promises. Now, according to what we read here in verse 12, if you look there with me, when we read here in verse 12, this command to be circumcised, it stand, extended way beyond Abraham and his son and, and, and his future de- descendants. At this time, God said it's going to include every male in your house. And if we were to look to verses 26 and 27 at the end of this chapter, we see that in response to God's command after Abraham did a little laughing, it says that the very same day, Abraham, his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house were circumcised. In light of this, we see that when it was all done, when it was all said and done, Abraham, we see, was willing to walk by faith. That's what we see by that. He was willing to walk by faith, but when I, can, when I consider the reality of all this, I have, to under, I have to wonder how it all went down. I sure wish I could have been there as a spectator to see. In other words, I'm sure it was one thing for Abraham to step out of his tent in faith, right, that next morning and tell his wife and all, their, all, the, other, all the other men in his camp that, hey, by the way, guys, God's changed my name from Abram to Abraham, Again, which means the father of multitude, considering at this point he was the father of what? One! You're like, really? A father of a multitude? Okay, whatever you say, Abraham. But you know, it was certainly a greater act of faith to step out of his tent and say that God said that he, his 13-year-old son, and the more than we know, from a few chapters back, more than 300 other men in his camp whom had been born in his house or had been purchased by him, that they were all going to be circumcised on that very day. That's a great act of faith. And the fact of the matter is, his wife and his sons and all the other in the camp could have very well thought and probably did think that Abraham had finally lost his mind. In fact, I can picture it. Remember Eleazar, his, his chief priest or his chief servant, who was the one who was originally, he said, named as an heir? I could see him going, as he come out, Abraham, come with me. We gotta talk for a minute. I gotta imagine him taking him aside and saying something like, Okay, if you want to be called a father of a multitude, (laughs) we can do this. But are you really sure about this whole circumcise thing? And the point is, 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 is apart from the promises, listen, apart from the promises attached to the name change and the circumcision, and this command to be circumcised, it would have been absurd. It would have been absurd for Abraham to do either of these things. Yet, God had promised. 
God had promised. The Lord God Almighty had promised. And He was calling Abraham and his wife Sarah to live by faith. He was calling them to live by faith, openly trusting in and believing upon and clinging to the promises that God had put before him. And the fact of the matter is, is God calls each one of us to do the same. So I ask this morning, as we begin to wrap it up, I ask, are we living our lives by faith? Are we living our lives by faith, daily trusting in and knowing that we too are the children of God who are going to heaven because of what Jesus did? Are we living our lives daily by faith, trusting and knowing that we have been bound to an everlasting covenant by the blood of Jesus? Because if we are living our lives by faith, then we will be radically and absurdly different than anyone else in this world around us. In fact, the things that we do and the way that we live will see will be seen by those in this world as radical and as absurd. Things like loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. If we live our lives by faith according to the promises that we cling to, this is what we will be doing. Loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And the world sees that as radical and absurd. Things like rejoicing in the Lord always and then denying the desires of our flesh in order to put others above ourselves. Radical and absurd. How about loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength? Something the world would say is radical and absurd. How about building God's kingdom and not our own? The point is, the promises of God that we have faith in, the promises of God that you and I say we have faith in should affect the way that we live today, should it not? And the only reason not to live in these ways or by any other way that the Bible instructs us would be if these promises were untrue. If the worship team wants to come back up, I'll end by reading this in James chapter 2, guys. Verses 14 through 24, it says this. What does it profit a man, brethren, if someone says he has faith and does not have works or deeds? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also by faith itself, it does not have works. It is dead. But somebody will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, James says, and I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you what I believe in by what I do. In other words, he says, you believe that there is one God. Guys, many in the world do. Many in the world do. You believe that there is one God. You do well. But James says, but even the demons believe this. And they tremble. But do you know, 
O foolish man, the faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And Scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Father God, as you have called us to walk before you in faith, help us to understand that your eyes are upon us. Help us to understand, God, that you've called us into this covenantal relationship by faith through the works that your son Jesus Christ has did, has done for us, and then by our faith in what you have done.